All right, let's, let's continue to think about the idea of, you know, we have, if we have a healthy home, we are definitely going to work on this idea of a healthy motivation. And now I want to talk a little bit about a healthy education. Now, I, I, wanna, I don't want to talk about this in a way in the sense that where people think, okay, healthy education, where should I send them? Public school, Christian school, home school? No, we're talking about a biblical mindset of how do you educate your children and have a home that is, is filled with uh, a mindset that looks like reverencing God. And so, so many times, uh, you know, I think many people view uh, educationally components, educational components, and they will look at it, and they, they would often say to me, like, they would come to me as a pastor even and say, uh, okay, well, which one should I do? Should I send my kids to a Christian school? Should I send my kids to a public school? And I've had people tell me, like, public school's the devil, uh, and, and they didn't know that I sent my kids to a public school. Uh, and, then, and then I said, oh, well, my kids go to that system. Oh. Uh, we took them back a little bit. Here's the thing is, when we understand the propensity and the challenges of the human heart, here's what I find. You find sinful kids in homeschool, sinful kids in public school, and sinful kids in Christian school. And you find good kids in public school and Christian school and homeschool. Okay? You, you, you tend to find that all over. And so the real factor is, how does the home function and center on whatever decision the, the mom and dad and the household come to that is connected with a number of other kinds of decisions And the main thing is that we want to park on is how do we educate from a heart-centered perspective? Because if if the goal, if if the idea is it's not just the atmosphere, okay, it's about the heart, then the heart then gets overlaid on whatever context that your children happen to be in. So when we think about a healthy education, look at verse number four of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, now think about the education of the average Jewish child for a moment. Here's one thing I want you to realize. A healthy education for a child in the home is predominantly theological. This is why he says, hear, O Israel, hear and listen and apply. That's the idea. Don't just hear me. I have plenty of my kids who say, I'm hearing you, but I know they're not hearing me. He's saying, hear this and understand the Lord our God is one. Okay, why would he say something like that? He would say that because in the culture in, in, that they were entering into the promised land, you were talking about a culture, a culture of Canaanite cities that were filled with pagan idolatry, multiplicity of gods, all kinds of places to temples to worship, places and things that were, were, you know, just horrific acts. And he's saying, first and foremost, Israel, the Lord our God, is one. Means one, he is one God over against the multiplicity of pagan idolatry that you see. And what they were trying to help understand educationally in the home was, there's something theological that you need to begin to understand to impress upon your kids about God. 
He is different than all the other places. Because guess what? If you were to go into the Canaanite villages and Canaanite cities after they ransacked them, guess what they would find the remnants of? And they would get the answer or the question from their children. Imagine you on a little field trip with your family walking around after Israel has finally conquered the land. Like, Mommy, Daddy, what's that? What's that? Oh, well, that's a ruin of a pagan altar. What did they use that for? Well, that is not the right God. It was predominantly theological. That, that same essence still functions in our culture today when all of a sudden the idolatry shifts. See, when do you tend to kind of see what people idolize, right? You tend to watch what people idolize and see it most clearly when you watch what they put their money to, what they put their mind effort towards, and all of their time as a family, uh, and, and all of these essences that, that go along. You can just mark it. Like, if you want to figure out, like, what do you love? Well, go look at what you spend money on. Go look at where you spend your time. I mean, I always found this kind of fascinating to some degree or another when I was a pastor, and it still happens today. Uh, but there's not a, you know, there's times where there's not a whole lot you can do. All of a sudden, it could be mid-service, and I'm in the middle of preaching, and I could have families get up and go, it's soccer time, it's basketball time, like we gotta go. Think about the kind of theological message you are sending to your children. Something just took second. I mean, the reality is I've watched this for years as parents do it. They think that it has no no influence or, 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 you know, thing that it influences on their children. I'll tell you, I watch their children as they get older, and all of a sudden they say, well, I'll do this first and then church if I get around to it. They take one step further to start functioning and serving their lives around other things. And those other things could be sports, they could be, you know, you, you, you name it. It is endless for people. And it's as if that somehow the theology of what we say and then what, they get, what gets caught by children is very different. Oh, well, why are we leaving church? Well, you know, you, you know we've got to do this because this is really significant. Like, how much of everybody who functions like that is really sitting in church to get something or they're just like, okay, are we almost there? Like, are we almost there? Okay, we're there. Let's go. I mean, I would, just, I would just challenge families to recognize that your influence and your education is predominantly about how you dispense a theology about God and how they catch it from how you live your life. Well, what kind of theology do we have to dispense? One, a theology that's right in against, over against a world that is filled with a completely different philosophy of, of thinking. Okay? Think about the culture that now we are entering into where uh, I remember probably 10 years ago, there was, a, there was a lady who, when I was in Minnesota, it was probably 20 years now, it's been so long, and they were coming up with a component of legislation 20 years ago where, where the, they were influenced to say, well, don't tell them what your, don't tell your children what gender they are. Let's just let them determine once they get old enough to determine that, and they can, they can figure that out when they get older. 
So as a parent, you don't tell them that. And that was coming into the legislation. Now, think about, we have to, we have, to have a theological disposition on how we look at humanity and who made the world and who has the right to define things. Your children need to hear an essence of what makes a man a man and a woman a woman at some point. Now, you never thought that you'd actually have to teach your children that because you thought that, well, it'd be just natural, right? Well, guess what? It's natural, but it's now when you live in a culture where you have to over, you, we always have to overlay a theology about what God says about any particular subject that exists. And now even marriage and even gender become those components where we have to say, what is the right theology of humanity? What is the right theology of manhood and womanhood? Because they're going to ask, uh, you know, uh, uh, here's, here's a situation. One of my children uh, not too long ago was uh, running on, on a team, and all of a sudden they're out and they're staying overnight. And uh, one, of the, one of the other individuals on the team, they're staying overnight at a hotel, and all of a sudden they're having a conversation. And she looks at my daughter and says, well, you know I'm gay, right? Like all of a sudden my daughter had to come to her mind if nothing came to her mind like, wait a minute. Like, oh, okay, well you can do that and I'll be this and you be that. Like if she didn't have a trigger in her mind to say, God says something about that. And I remember my parents talking to me about manhood and womanhood and what that looks like. That could be very awkward for her now to dispense. She has to live that theology out in a culture where, where she now has to realize, I need to share something with this person and care for them and try to share the gospel. Well, different worldly philosophies, different moral agendas. Think about this one. Just beyond just the, the cultural component, we get fixated on that. But what about this? A theology of suffering. Like, do your children learn that in your home, a theology of suffering? How do you suffer in a way that pleases God? What happens when all of a sudden mom has a miscarriage and other children know that mommy had a baby in her stomach and now all of a sudden she doesn't have it there anymore? How, does, how do they then dispense, like, where's God in the midst of all that suffering? What happens when grandpa passes away or a close you know, friend that they were in preschool with or went to school with or went to college with all of a sudden gets in a car accident and all of a sudden that takes place. I mean, I remember having to help understand at eight years old when my daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Helping her try to understand a theological perspective of what God is, is able, he allowed to an eight-year-old mind. Like thinking, how is she going to think about God through the midst of the suffering? Like we end up having to educate our children on a theological level when it comes to worldly components, suffering. Like what, what, what are you, how do you respond to life when you, uh, when you don't get what you want? You know, we need to learn a theology of obedience. Like, why do children obey? 
Children, obey your parents. I remember when my children were little, little ones. It was probably one of the first verses they learned as a, as a little child. And we would say, now remember, Ephesians 6, 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for, and they'd be like, this is right, until they got in trouble. And then it wasn't right anymore. See, we're helping them understand that rightness and righteousness is from is from God. That's not, I don't get to determine that. I get to help them understand what God says is right so that then they have a right perspective of obedience to an authoritative, reverential, loving, compassionate God. What about a theology of discipline? You know, uh, I always think this is such a, fun, there was such a funny story. One time I was preaching and, uh, you know, of course, uh, in the middle of the a sermon, there was a child. This is always going to happen at some particular point. Uh, a child is disobeying, and they're sitting there, and, and uh, the child was uh, at a point where they needed to be taken out of the service, and the parent grabbed them, and they were wobbling and, you know, wiggling so much, he just kind of flung her over the shoulder. And I'm, I'm sitting there preaching, and all of a sudden, we just, everybody in the congregation hears, I don't want a spanking, as they kind of walked out the door. You know, but what is that for? Like I would tell my children, I would say to them repetitively, why does daddy and mommy discipline you? I would use the word discipline instead of, instead of other words because that's the word that God uses to correct us in Hebrews. God disciplines those whom he loves. And I'm trying to connect their theological framework with If God who loves me disciplines me, and if I love God, and you're not following what God says you should do, then what does a loving father do for a child who doesn't obey? And what does that actually say about how much they love them? I remember one of my kids, uh, they were pretty young at the time, and uh, you, you realize how much they're comprehending, and they said something like, you know, Dad, you know so and so at church, I don't think their parents love them. I said, why? I don't ever get a discipline. I get them all the time. I think you love me a lot. <laughs> but notice their, their mindset was, was starting to connect the idea of loving care and discipline and not just, hey, go do whatever you want. And they were connecting it with a theological framework that a God who loves us loves us enough to correct us. And isn't that what the Bible gives to us in 2 uh, you know, Timothy 1? You know, when we, or 2 Timothy 3, 16, where it says, all Scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God can be equipped for every good work. That is a parenting home-type atmosphere. Yes, it's given to Timothy, but that application of that is good for the home. And we have to help them realize, well, what does God say is good about this? What does God say is good about that? You know, many, many times, we're going to have to teach our children what it looks like to have a healthy theological sense of God's provision. They, they will easily say, well, so-and-so God, I mean, recently, there, uh, you know, in our own family, there's always various things. You notice, uh, you know, children and, and uh, even mothers and fathers, they're not the only ones that covet. Uh, they see another child with something and they're like, 
I like that. I want that. They hear about different things, and all of a sudden they get fixated on, well, how come God didn't provide that for me? Well, you see this very easily in, in, in what discipline looks like, for example, from the youngest of ages. You know, so often parents will, will come into a room, and of course our kids were just little dirty, rotten sinners just like everybody else's, and of course they're going to fight, they're going to push each other down, and they're going to take each other's toys. Uh, you, I finally get in the room, and of course, at this particular point, I'm not really excited to be in there because I'd like to sit in the lazy boy. And I wanted, to not, I wanted to stay there. By the time I get in there, of course, I'm getting in there. I see somebody took a toy. Guess what most parents, often, often first response is? Who had it first? Is that really what's at stake here? Or is it, why did you want that so much? What does other-centeredness look like? Are you willing to give it up even if you wanted it? Is it right for you to push them down? It's so easy for us to forego what we're supposed to do even in discipline and theology because we just want a quick fix. We just want to say, oh, how can we get this done as quick as we possibly can? And even discipline, the theology of the home becomes you know, something we have to begin to start saying. Okay, what does that look like? So many parents even in the home, and I watch grandpa and grandmas do it as well, Think about how do we do this? I remember watching a neighbor one time. It was, uh, you know, they were, they were sitting there and I can remember the frustrating component. Practical advice. The longer you wait to do something about what you know they shouldn't be doing, the more frustrated you'll become. Do you find that to be true? Like if, they, if you say, don't do that, and then they keep doing it, or you say, hey, don't do that. Well, here's the solution for many people. I watch, I watch people do this. I watch my neighbor do this. Uh, He's like, don't do that, Alan. One. Alan. Two. Alan. Three. I was thinking to myself, like, how high will they go before they do something about this? I mean, they were up in the teens. Now, you can imagine when they finally got to the teens... They were like, 15, Ellen. See, the longer you wait to do what you know you should do, the byproduct of that is going to be frustration and anger on your part. And then what kind of theology will, become, will come out of your heart? Anger? Will it be a right sense of justice? I'll tell you, a wrong sense of justice is, who had it first? Is it really? That's not what it's about. What it's about is, why did you want this so much and why did you believe that you could do this to another person who you know that you care about and God put into our family? What does other-centeredness look like and kindness? And is that how God wants to view, for us as a family to picture his love and compassion? But it's so often so quick for us to bypass any of that kind of theology and just go with the things that seem to be quickest and easiest. He says in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Can I just challenge you with this? Because we're going to park here for a little bit because this is such a critical component. Okay, think about Proverbs 4.23 for a moment. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Okay, now everything you do, everything you think, every action that comes out of your life is a direct result of whatever's going on in your heart. 
And so when he's saying, if you want to have a good atmosphere, a good home, and you want to focus on a good motivation, you want to educate them well, that you have to have a theology that actually speaks about the heart. Because the heart is, what, is where all motivation comes from. If you have a wrong theology, whatever that wrong theology is, it doesn't just stay there. Okay? It's not a, it, it, the reality of it for you and I is this. You live by whatever theology you have, whether it's good or whether it's bad, but you have one, and you live it out, and the Bible says we get people around us, each other, the Christian community, your home, your children, your wife, your husband, will see what's in there based on what comes out of there. Okay? Now, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That's not like three or four of you. He's not saying, hey, did you, hey, uh, you didn't come here and I didn't have to ask you like, hey, so glad to meet you. Did you bring your soul with you? Like, did you bring your strength? No, he's talking about figurative language that describes the totality of the way that you're motivated to focus on the heart. This is, he's saying, love God with the totality of your whole being. That becomes the most significant portion for you and I as parents to speak to the motivation of, of God and a right theology of who they are and what motivates them. It's the heart. For example, think about why this is so critical. We live, I mean, let me just say it this way. Do you like to excuse yourself from things you do even though you know you, you shouldn't do them? Like, I remember, I remember it was one particular time. Uh, I was, uh, you know, we have different chores and different things and related to the house, and one of the children's job was to do the dishes. And, of course, when I got home, they weren't done. You ever have those things happen? Somebody else's responsibility, I come home. Well, I'm not really interested in serving that home. I want to be served, not serving. And so here I'm having to do it, and I'm frustrated. They can see it. They can see that I'm frustrated, and I say, well, if you kids would not do this, then I wouldn't be so upset. And of course, I've been teaching them a kind of theology of responsibility of what it looks like, and I said, you guys, just, you're making me so angry. And one of, my little, one of my children said to me, you know, Dad, I mean, what you said to us is like, like we can't make you angry. That was kind of a choice that you, you made. Like, then I was really angry. Like, how dare you use the right theology against me? See, the reality is, is we want a, a discipleship philosophy in the home where even our children are able to catch inconsistencies and excuses so that then they can say, then what's really going on here? Is it really things like this that we often excuse? You know, someone says something really bad or some really ugly comment or sinful comment and someone indefinitely says something like this. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry you had to see me. Like, I was just exhausted. I was so tired. That totally wasn't me. I mean, do you not walk away from those conversations and be like, Man, I swear that looked like you. Like, it sounded like you. It looked like you. It, it came from the bedroom that I know that you exist in. It's like, but we do that. Oh, it's, I, I had a stressful day at work or someone said this to me at the office or you wouldn't believe what's going on here and all of a sudden we're no longer who we are. We're a byproduct of what 
Now, the excuse that I get to make, instead of saying, no, wait a minute here, what is it that I want? What is it that I'm doing? And that, what they are seeing, is the, the real me that is lurking underneath the surface of my, of my behavior is a heart that is dispensing a theology of something that I think is valuable. See, the real reason that the heart is so significant is because the heart demonstrates what you and I value. Well, what does God value? If, if we could say we could want to train our children's heart, then we got to care about what God cares about. And you know what? It's fascinating that we, did, we get a story like this in 1 Samuel. You remember this when, when he's replacing Saul as king and he, and he sends Samuel and Samuel has all the other brothers walk before him and he gets to the first one and it makes a comment like about, I think it was Reuben, the firstborn, when he's just like, oh man, he saw him. He was like this tall, strapping guy. And Samuel, in his own mind, like he gives us the record of what was going on in his, in his mind. And he's like, surely this is the guy. Well, think about what he was basing it off of. How did they describe Saul? Head and shoulders above the rest of everyone else. He looked like a king. I mean, here was the guy from every external facade. You thought, this guy should be king. Samuel comes, and he bases it off the previous perspective, and he said, I think this is it, and what God says to him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. He looks on the outer appearance, but God looks on the heart. Like, what you and I have to be mindful of is that the, the God of heaven is not just looking about what our kids are doing. He's looking at the heart of what the things, the heart that they're, that they're behaving with. And you know what? That's a, that's a universal principle for every single Christian. It's not just a principle for the home. You've got to think, how, what is going on in your heart, what, what is going on in my heart matters so much because it is, the, it is the source from which I do everything that I do. It's not just sinful acts are not just bad because God says these are sinful and these are not. You can, and this is where we often get tripped up, and if we're not careful, we don't help our children understand this. Most often for Christians, when it focuses on the heart, is not just the, hey, I'm not going to go, you know, smoke marijuana or, you know, drink in excess in this component or do all kinds of other sinful things. We get tripped up with loving the right things to the wrong degree. I can't tell you how many marriages, how many homes that I've counseled who they'll say to me. If I, I would ask them the question, if I could do anything for you, what is it that you want me to do? And they'll say, you know what, I just don't want to fight anymore. I just want obedient children. Like, is that really the, the focus? It can't be. But their heart gets fixated on loving. Now, is those things... Is that right? I don't want people to fight. I just want a good marriage. I want a good family atmosphere because I'm just afraid that if, 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 if it happens the way it happened for me, then another generation will be produced that doesn't understand God and, they'll, and then my children will be ruined. They live by all kinds of things that are coming out of their heart. And the, I think what we have to remember is why do we want what we want when we want it? Your heart and my heart 
if it's sinful and depraved, it has an impulse and a propensity to want things it shouldn't want to a degree that it shouldn't want it. So how do we know that? Well, you can ask yourself questions like, what happens when I don't get what I want? Or what happens when I get something that I would prefer not to? Or I, I, want, I want something that I don't have at all. What does my heart do? You watch for it and you'll see what, kind of, what theology you're living by. You know, after a while, it's so easy to simply forego a right theology for things we want that are not necessarily sinful, but we begin to love them too much. For example, it's very easy for a mom who just has a baby all of a sudden, and they're having a hard time because they don't get as much sleep, and they begin to say to themselves, I just want one full night's rest, please! But that, is that wrong? Not in, it, in and of itself. Can it become wrong? Yes. When you think that you need it so bad that it's okay for you to sin around everybody else until you get what you want. Now you've taken a good thing and making it a bad thing. And now, well, you've made it a God thing. When you begin to serve it and somebody else decides to take that thing away, it's like, it's like taking away from a child something that they really desire and possess, and you say, I'm going to take that excuse away, it's very, it's very difficult not to be upset, to say, God, why are you doing this? I mean, think about it in regard, I've even had parents who, of course, these are very challenging circumstances, but even as God, in his own sovereignty and will, determines who lives and dies, and someone, a child in the home passes away, and all of a sudden, somebody says, God, how dare you do this to our family? Like, we were the perfect family. Like, we, we, did, we were doing everything right, and then you did this to us. And think about the theology that, gets, uh, that comes out of the heart uh, in, these, in these dynamics. Now, when we think about the heart, I want you to think about it this way. Think about it in a three-dimensional sense. If, if we say in Matthew 22, okay, you know it. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I can tell you, I've, I've asked many, many Christians this question, and they would say, I would say, do you know what the greatest commandment is? They'd say, yes, love God with all your heart. i say, do you know how to do that? Well, no. Well, this is how. You become attentive to your cognition, your affections, and your volition. See, why you do what you do is really important. Why you love what you love is also connected to that, which ultimately produces why you do what you do. Okay? When a child does something and acts in a wrong way and behaves in a sinful manner, we don't just say, why did you hit your sister? Why did you hit your brother? Why did you go here? Why did you yell at mom or dad or disrespect me? Well, that's all outcome. There's something that they were loving and there was something that they were believing that if they got it, that they would be much better off if they had it. And they began to fixate on that. The more they began to think, if I could go here and I could do this, then, then they began to love it. The more they began to love it, the more they began to think, I have to have it. How dare you not let me have it? 
We don't pay attention to the heart often in the home because it takes time to ask questions about what's going on there. It's all about how God views the, the, the heart of your child. If all of a sudden some parent says something like, you know, what's, give me your report card. Like, I want to see that there are all A's on that report card or I'm not going to be happy. Like all of a sudden they begin to live with a fear and trepidation that the goal of their life is to make their parents' minds at peace as long as they, as long as they produce the status quo and then they, they'll be a good person. Well, did you get a good grade? Well, yes. Okay, that's what we expect. We have a high caliber of intellectualism in this family. And you know what? You we're going to keep that. You don't want to be that one. You don't, don't be the dumb one. All of a sudden, the fixation becomes on something like a grade or a goal or a sport or starting or playing or being the best on the team. When my kids come home and they say, oh man, uh, I studied and I got this and I got this grade, I got an A. My response isn't like, yes, like A, up top. It's, that's great. Did you honor the Lord? Like, do you realize, you know, somebody could not do any work? I was always jealous of these people. They could do no work whatsoever and still come out with an A. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. But there's no thoughts of God. There's no thoughts about honoring God, serving God. It was just like, this is nothing. I don't even have to work for it. I don't even have to put in effort. I don't even have to think about God. I just do what I do. I can get what I can get because I'm pretty good. I want my children to understand that an A or a B or a C is not the most important factor. It's the factor of whether they honored God. If 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, in whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that means every single facet of how they thought, how they prepared. If they got a C, it's like, well, you know, that did you, and I saw that they really made an effort. They studied hard. They put in the work. I say, you know what? I am really thankful that you put in all that work. You honored the Lord. And that's all right that you got a C. Like, I am just as happy with you at a C because you honored the Lord than if you got an A and didn't care anything about him. See, the goal becomes their heart's disposition towards how they respond to an almighty God. We live in a kind of Disney culture, if you haven't figured that out. It's a follow your heart mentality, and when you do that, our kids grow up under that mentality where all of a sudden you do what feels good instead of doing what God says is good for them. And the heart is that mechanism where everyone in the home begins to say, you know, it's not about the skill I have. It's not about the occupation they have. You know, I tell my children all the time as they grew up in my home, there's not an expectation for you like, they don't have to be a pastor. They don't have to be a professor, even though I do those things. They don't have to, you know, if I was a, a, a doctor or if I was a, you know, a factory worker, if I worked, it's like, here's what I want from you. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. I, if God gives you a spouse, I want you to love her the way Jesus loved you. And if he gives you a family, I want you to be other-centered and I want you to love them 
with, with the way God wants you to. And I want you to get involved with the church and I want you to just invest yourself into the life of, of the body and other people because that's what God says. And I want you, and whatever you do, like from an occupational sense, I'm really less concerned about. Like I am not gonna be disappointed with you if you said, I don't wanna go to college. Okay. But you have to be a good Christian. You have to be a good husband or a wife. You have to be a good father or a mother. And you have to be a good participant in the local church. Those are non-negotiables. But you know what's negotiable? What you do. Like, I don't look at him like, well, all of us are here, and then we got this one over here who kind of just wanted to work at McDonald's. Well, maybe that isn't the place they'll be in 10 years from now, but it's not my biggest, it's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is how serious are you taking your own life before God and living out the theology that God has in their life? Do you realize that all of these components of cognition, affection, and volition are overlaid when, as your kids grow up, you have to begin to ask questions. You have to begin to think, okay, how do I know my child's heart Well, that's in the sense of healthy determination. You notice it says in the text, as they rise up, as they walk by the way, as they lay down. uh, I wish it maybe only said like one of those things and then the other two like somebody else could do sometimes. Because the 24-7 aspect is very challenging. You know, I don't get a chance to be like, especially now that my kids are older uh, and I have teenagers in my house, Uh, They're busy, some of them are working, some of them are getting school done and doing all these things, and I'm about wiped for the day, and all of a sudden at like 11 o'clock, like I got a knock on the door when I'm just about, like I just really desired just to go to bed. They're like, can we talk? Like at that moment, like they need to know that they can come to me no matter what, and I have to be willing to say, what's my heart? going to show them at that moment? Am I willing to listen? Am I going to draw out what's going on in their heart? What's the struggle that they were having? You know, it is really important for, for parents, grandparents, and people in the home to recognize what the hearts are doing in the home so that you can pray more effectively. Do you realize that every single one of your children, every one of your grandkids, are unique and have different influences from different people, which means they make different choices. They love different things, which means they're going to struggle with different things. I have one child that that at one particular point struggled with a level of discouragement and another one struggled with anger and another one struggled with something else and another one was struggling with assurance. And like, well, how did you find that out? Because we sat down and we talked. Like we would talk as a family. I know that's a novel concept in a technological world where everybody's fixated on TV and entertainment and phones and and social media and Facebook and Instagram and you name it. I can tell you, when you take the time to begin to say, okay, what is going on in the lives of the people in that home, you start assessing as a parent. My wife and I would do this at different times in the upbringing of our children, and we still do it now we would take time to sit together and we would talk about what we know, what we can see coming out in behavior in the lives of each and every one of our children. So that we could then take an inventory of what's happening and we could say, 
here's some questions that we really want to ask them. We're going to ask these set of questions to this one, and we're going to ask these set of questions to this one, and we want to care for their soul in this way, and we're going to care for their soul in this way. Because we had to make it, I mean, think about how personal God is with, with you. I mean, he's teaching you through all of the different things that you're going through. And he tailors his sovereignty and your teaching to you because he cares that much about you. As a parent, guess what? You have got to take some inventory. And you know what? This is a great thing to do. Even as a grandparent, you can say to your children who are rearing your grandchildren, tell me how I can pray for for my grandkids. Where are they struggling at times that you, that you want me to lift them up before the Lord for you on your behalf so I can tailor my prayers to match what's actually going on? And we often don't do this because we don't take the time to do it in the home. And I would just encourage you as a mom and a dad, especially in all the age ranges of your kids, take a time and say, you know what? How do I need to parent this one with what principles of God's word differently in a way that this one's struggling with this and this one's struggling with this, but what does God's word say to each of those struggles? And now you overlay a theology that helps them understand the struggles that they live in. And now they begin to say, man, the word has something to say about virtually everything that I have going on in my life. It's so fascinating to watch some of my children, even as they struggle with various things of assurance of salvation and all those things, and I can tailor and I can go find a specific devotional and I can bring it home to one of them and say, hey, I know that you and I have been talking about this. We've been praying about this. We've been, we've been discussing how the word impacts this. And I brought this devotional home that's gonna give you, help you with 30 days in thinking about the text of scripture that talk about the assurance of your salvation that's not in your good works. It's based upon him. And I'll tell you, in like, in, in two of the devotionals, within the first two days, uh, they, one, of the, one of my daughters came back to me and said, it's like, that, it's like that devotional was like speaking right to me when it took me to this text of Scripture. Who's doing that? God is. He's using your parenting to tailor it to them, to get them to the Word so that they can see God has something to say about their struggles. But if you don't take the time to do that, and you just kind of rush through, and it's hard when you're kids and you got a lot of busyness going on, but if you don't take the time to take an inventory to say, what's going, how is this heart responding? How, what, are, what does this child tend to excuse more than the, this, this one does? And I would say one of the reasons why this doesn't happen is because often many parents don't take inventory of their own heart. They don't ask the questions of their own life. Husbands and wives don't sit and ask each other, where, do you, where are you struggling? Or where, in, where are you having a hard time being obedient to the Lord in a way that I can lift you up in prayer and I can strengthen you in the Lord and we can go to certain passages together? They're not doing it. And when they don't do it, then they expect like, how is that going to trickle down from generation to generation to generation? Do you realize that even within children that one may even end up disobeying and being stubborn at times, that even when you dispense that kind of theology, even on a stubborn soul that the law of God is written on their heart, and all of a sudden, they even still resonate with the reality that God is still there 
even though I know I'm not doing what's right, and I should be, but I still have an authority sense, and that goes with them every day of their life, even when they're not obeying it. They're living with a pressure that God has designed for them to realize they're not their, their own authority. God is the authority. We've got to get really good at assessing how we think about the heart. Notice, the purpose in a man or a woman's heart is like deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw it out, the proverb says. How do you know what's going on in the heart so that you can love God with all your heart? You've got to start asking questions to yourself. I mean, think about the imagery that he gets. He gives in the Proverbs. You let the bucket down. It's a, it's a very well-orientated picture. He lets the bucket down, and he brings it up, and he says, the, the, down, down deep in the well is the motives and the purposes. We have to ask our children and ask ourselves, why did I do what I was doing? Why was I thinking about what I was thinking about? Why did I respond the way I responded? What does God think about that? What does that say about me? What does it say about what I love? Guess what? When we do this with our children, you think about, uh, many, many parents would say to me over the years, well, how do you do that with a young child when they're just upset and they're two or three years old? I have had plenty of times where I went to my child and said, why did you hit your sister? I don't know. Do you know, I have, I have asked that same question to adults, not that they hit their sister. Why did you do what you do? Did I get the same responses? I don't know. Because they're not thinking deeply about why they're doing what they're doing. And so what do we do when a child does that? I would say to my child, even at the youngest of ages, from the time that they were playing in the toy room, instead of coming in, and I began to see all these things, instead of who had it first, instead of saying, well, you don't know, so how am I supposed to do this? You get a discipline, and then we're going to try to figure this out. I would say to them, well, why don't you tell me something? Do you really like that toy? Oh, that's my favorite toy. Well, what happened when, when they came over and when you came in the room and they saw that you were playing with your favorite toy? Well, I just started to want it really bad. Well, what did you do about that? Well, why did, I might even say to them, like, why do you love that toy so much? Oh, I mean, that was the one toy that so-and-so gave me and I just play with it every day and, oh, I just, I have so much joy when I... Well, so when you wanted that so bad, what did you do in order to get that joy? Well, I just went over there and took it. Well, do you think God is pleased with what you did? And why do you think he's not pleased with that? And if I'm a good father, then what... What does a good father, the heavenly father, do? Does he give us instruction about that? We're slowing down because I'm helping their young mind come to conclusions about God being authority and who they're responsible to. And one day we're going to stand before God. And guess what? Daddy has those same authoritative things that he has to obey the Lord too. I don't get the right to say I can do what I want and take what I want and go where I want if God says I shouldn't. I slow it down. I start teaching them to understand that. We don't often want to do that. And there's many times I didn't want to do that because it takes time. We've got to get our minds wrapped around that if we don't take the time, that we will not be dispensing the kind of theology and life 
principles to our children if we just walk in and want the quickest thing taken care of. Who did this? Let's get back to peace. Let's get back to dinner. It's not about dinner. It's not about your comfort. It's not about whatever it is you want. It's about how you can teach them what's going on in their heart. And it's by asking them questions to help them understand that. This is why Psalm 127, it's why it says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Because if you send out people with right theology, then how are they going to impact the world? They're going to impact the world from a theological vantage point. They're going to share the gospel. They're going to give the truth. They're going to help the people who are, who are poor and destitute and, and suffering. They're going to be mindful of those things. And we got to get really good at drawing out the heart for our kids. Think about these cognitive questions that we often have to think about. Is this action or thought right or wrong? Who gets to determine that? Does God say this is right? Would God be pleased with what you, what you are thinking? What am I believing about God or his ways? Well, I just don't like it when he doesn't give us. Or what is God's desire for the Christian? How should a Christian respond? Do I believe that God is loving? Do I believe that God's in control? What is God's purpose for my life? Like, what is the point of all this? These are all cognitive things that our thinking affects what we love and what we think and love impacts what we do. All of these things. What will make you feel safe or secure? Well, I mean, think about, I mean, in the middle of the night, if all I did was to say to my child, okay, every time, like, you're afraid, you're coming to sleep with me. Like, I don't know about you, I don't want a family bed. I like just two people in the bed. Okay? Because the reality is, what am I trying to help them realize? Okay? It's not that I never helped and comfort and secured them in that moment, but what I did for them is express their theology in the midst of fear. Okay, let we can stop for a moment. I'm going to wake up. Let's, we're going to pray because God is with us. It's okay. I know you hear the thunder and I know you see the lightning out your window and that makes you a little frightened. But do you know who made that? Do you know who's in control of that? Oh yeah, God is in control of that. Would, does God know what's best for us? Does God know there's an extent of that? Yeah, you're right. Okay, let's pray and just ask him to help protect us and guide us and you know what's, you know what's uh, just fascinating to me? When, we just, when I would take a brief moment to help them reframe how they were thinking about that fearful moment, that their heart was calmed. And it's like, all right, now let's take you back down to bed. And they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm going to go back to sleep. God's got everything under control. Like that kind of theology helps them learn to interact with the fears that they have. Otherwise, parents tend to capitulate to everything like a child wants. Well, they won't go do this. Oh, they won't go do that. Well, that's an endless list of a lot of things. Help try to identify, what is your fear? What are you afraid of? Do you think I won't be here when you get up? If God knows all that transpires. We help them that way in order to live under God. We can ask questions of cognitive uh, abilities. We ask questions like these when it comes to affections. What are you loving? What does that show that you were loving more than you were loving God? When you wanted this and you did this or you said that, 
What is that show about what you love more than God? How did you respond? How did your response reflect what, you're, what you value? Oh man, I wanted that a lot. Well, it showed. Well, what are you praying for? Why are you praying for that? You know, it's remarkable to me that many times when people have struggles, even in the home, and I'll ask a simple question such as, well, what have you been doing? Like, what have you done to try to solve your problem? And about 100% of the time, I get the answer on the, on the sheet that says we prayed about it. But I have no idea what they're praying. I say, well, what have you been praying? I've just been praying that God would just remove the problem. I was just praying that God would just make it better. Well, how can he do that? Well, now I'm trying to help them understand that. How will, you, how will getting what you, what you want bring you security and significance? Are you desiring something too much? Or are you desiring it too little? You care a lot about becoming, I would say to my kids, you seem to care a lot about becoming this great athlete. But how come I don't see a lot of care about what's going on spiritually? Which one of these are most significant? And which one are you spending the most time trying to do? And I'm trying to help them shape that. What are the ways, you're, are you, what ways are you desiring good things to the wrong degree? What do you want? Oh, now you're like, as my kids got older, I have one that is, uh, is thinking about a truck right now for the first time as, as, a, as an 18-year-old son. And I get on the phone, he's like, Dad, I'm getting a truck. Like, I'm a man. Like, okay, son. But his mind, like, are you fixated on that? Or are you fixated on, are you good and spiritual and right in God's eyes? Are you doing those things? And then I can ask questions of volition. What are the circumstances? What effect did your actions have on, your, on you and others? And what does God think about what you did? And what were you thinking when you chose to do these things? What, 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 what is the connection between your behavior and what you loved and what you were thinking? I am helping them learn to evaluate their heart because the biggest component is, is in my home, I don't want my kids to leave my house not being able to think about what's going on in their own heart in a way that they are confused about the choices that they're making and the consequences that they might experience if they go outside of God's authority and how much he loves and how much they need to follow that instruction. They have to be able to counsel themselves with the truth, knowing that God is loving and caring and, and consistent. And we've, if we do that, I can tell you, I'm watching some of my older kids now learn to counsel themselves, and I can tell you, I'm so encouraged that even when I would struggle now in certain things, that they're challenging me as a parent. Say, Dad, well, have you thought about this? What were you thinking here? How are you responding here? Oh, those are good questions. Like, I forgot to ask those ones. And we created within our home a discipleship atmosphere that everyone had the opportunity to draw out the heart for the well-being of one another. And when we do that, and when they would do that in Deuteronomy, God was trying to create a, a system of a healthy home so that then they would know how to, how to respond to the culture to the theology that they should live by, and to do it consistently in a way that it would be passed from generation to generation. You know what our kids should be able to say? My dad taught me how to lead. I just watched him love God. I knew God 
how God was as a disciplinarian through the way that my dad consistently lovingly led and disciplined me. I knew what submission was like by watching my mom. And this wasn't a despicable thing. Like she loved to serve and to submit in ways that are just godly. And I learned this from my, you know, this is so fascinating to me now that my kids are older and out of the home. That when, even at times when I'm asleep and my kids can't reach out to me, now they're starting to reach out to, my, to, the, to their older siblings. And, and my older sibling, or my older children now are saying, hey, can you, have you asked yourself this? Have you asked yourself this? And we know where to go to help keep each other safe in the theology that God has given to us so that we're more consistent. As you do that, I really believe that God is pleased with that kind of home and the kind of hearts that are developed in that atmosphere. And when you teach hearts to respond that way, there's not any life situation that you can't ask questions to and get to the bottom of what's going on. And God's word is so poignant to bring us to the instruction and to what is the solution for it. But we've got to take time to ask those things of our own heart because without it, we'll just be behavioristic. Oh, you just do this, do this, instead of theological, which is believe this, love this, and then you'll practice this. That's the way God designed it to be. Uh, let's close for tonight. I'll turn it back over to you, Jim, and, uh, and uh, you can close us up. about you, some of that hits you you're right in the, in the face that says, am I teaching those around me the way that God wants me to? And I, I don't know about you, I looked at the topic of this one, it was godly communication, but sometimes we forget that that's not just what we say to our kids, what we say to those around us, but what we're teaching them through all of the aspects of interaction with them. And we can look at some of those questions, and sometimes it's, it's even given to us in a way that's uh, given it to how, how would you talk to your kids about it? But those questions are so practical for each of us as we go through our own stuff and we ask ourselves, our hearts, what was I loving? What was I thinking? What was I wanting more than God? And it, it has to start with you yourself personally before it transfers to the people around you and you are able to help the people that are around you, your kids and your spouse. It's got to start with you um, and, and asking those questions. And really striving to have a, a godly perspective on life. And knowing, glorifying him with our actions are best. And will bring you the most joy because you're finding your joy in him. And so, thank you for that. We're going to continue tomorrow morning. We start 9 o'clock. We've got two more sessions. So I hope you can make it out. Um, just remember, there's a free will offering on the table if you want to give towards that. But I hope we can see you back out tomorrow. Let's pray and I'll let you go for the evening. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us, and bringing us along in our Christian walk as we um, have a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. That's the beginning, but you want each of us to grow and to continue to, to serve you and to teach our, our families. And God, just to, uh, help us as we take in the, tonight's information, but then also tomorrow, to just put it into practice. And uh, we know that we're not perfect in every aspect, but God, Help us to take the practical um, instruction, put it into practice, and, and ask for your help in developing that in our home so that we have godly homes 
that want to serve you and families that want to grow and teach their kids to serve you. And God, help that to be our heart. Thank you for our time in your word tonight and being challenged by you. In Jesus' name, amen.